0: Good morning, faith family. How's everybody doing? Good? You ready for round three? If you got your Bible, go to uh, the book of Jude. The book of Jude, it's uh, a second to last book in the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. If you need help uh, getting there, just go to the table of contents. And we've been uh, in the book of Jude now for a few weeks. We're doing a series, if you're new with us, uh, looking at contending for the faith. Uh, Everybody has something in their life uh, that they see is worth fighting for. Everybody does. Well, as Christians, we believe the faith is worth fighting for. Uh, That as Christians, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, when we say fight, we don't mean fighting with fists. We're not talking about anything physical, we're talking about uh, standing firm in our faith and uh, uh, not willing to compromise uh, what it is that we believe. Uh, and so that's what we've been challenging you to do for the last few weeks. Week one, we talked about what you have to do to prepare for the fight, so you can go back and look at that. Last week, we talked about the fact, hey, at some point, you got to get in the ring, Christian. You can't just sit and prepare the whole time and never actually engage. Uh, all Christians are called to contend for the faith. This morning, I want to expose the enemy or the opponent that we see here in uh, the book of Jude. Uh, this were, these were the false teachers in uh, Jude's time, and I think we'll see a little bit of parallel even to our own day. So if you're able to stand, I'll ask you to please do so. As we honor the reading of God's Word, we're going to start here in Jude verse 3 and read down to verse 11. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, and he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued an unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, In like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perish in Korah's rebellion. This is God's word be thankful you don't have to teach it. All right? So this is, that's a hard text. Some of you are like, what is this? Um, so we shall pray. Um, and I, I do in all seriousness ask you to pray for me. Uh, there is a word here we need to hear. And all Scripture is God-breathed. And here at Berean, we don't dodge difficult text. Amen. Amen. So pray for me that God will speak to us. Through his word today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for passages that are uh, on the surface difficult to understand. It's why we must be diligent to study faithfully what your word has to say. And uh, it's amazing, even though there's a lot of terms here that that a lot of us may not readily understand or recognize, um, this passage is so unbelievably relevant to our life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now guide us into the truth and uh, reveal to us what your word has to say. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen, Amen. you may be seated. It was one of the most famous uh, bank robberies in history. Uh, it was August 23rd, uh, 1973. The setting was Stockholm, Sweden. That's when John Eric Olson walked into a Swedish bank and attempted to rob the place. It didn't take long till the police had completely surrounded the bank and trapped Olson inside. When he realized that he was not going to be able to escape, uh, his response was to take some of the people in the bank hostage in the back and begin to negotiate with the authorities for his release. He wanted $3 million in cash, some guns, bulletproof vest, and a fast getaway car. If the authorities were not willing to meet his request, he would begin to kill the hostages. The result was a six-day standoff between the authorities and Olson. Now, what happened during those six days was remarkable. Olson did something, not, not in a good way, but he did something that was unbelievable. In those six days, he not only captured the lives of those hostages, he captured their minds. One of the hostages was a woman by the name of Kristen Inmark. On one occasion, while she was being held hostage, she was given the opportunity to make a phone call to the prime minister of Sweden. And when she did, much to his shock, she started going on and on about what a great person Olson was. How nice he treated her and she meant it she wasn't making that up she wasn't just trying to be nice she actually believed it so much so that when the authorities tried to rescue her she refused choosing instead to stay with Olson And she wasn't the only one. When he was finally taken into custody, get this, not a single hostage, not one was willing to testify against him at his trial. He wasn't successful at stealing money, but he was very successful at stealing minds. In fact, that story, that event coined a phrase, you've likely heard it. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. It's a a phrase that's used to describe people uh, in this condition. They've been in captivity for so long that they start to identify with their captivity instead of reality. Are you with me? They begin to identify with captivity rather than reality. They become influenced by their surroundings to the point they don't even know what reality is. And that kind of thing happens in a lot of even practical ways. I've seen people that have been in dysfunctional relationships for so long, they just begin to assume that that's normal individuals that have been a part of a losing culture for so long, they just start to identify with losing. If you live in certain geographic areas of the country, it will begin to have an influence on you, like you'll start talking different, don't you know, right? (laughs) You betcha, right? You'll begin to get influenced by your surroundings. It, It happens all the time. We know this, right? Come here. The same thing can happen spiritually. Christian, there is a danger that because we live in the world, we will start approaching life with a worldly mentality rather than biblical reality. The Stockholm Syndrome is real in a spiritual sense. It's why the Bible warns things like this, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 2, 8, see to it that no one takes you what? Captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ right here stockholm syndrome's real Namely, that as a Christian, if you allow yourself to be influenced by what is false, you will forsake what is true. If you allow your mind to be influenced by that which is false, you will forsake what is true. You'll have no real sense of reality. That's the danger. It's why Jude writes this letter. Look at it again, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write a, to appeal to you to contend for the faith. Do something! Don't just stand there. Contend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Why must you contend? Here's why: for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Jude writes this letter, as we've said, because he's concerned. Listen, Christian, he's concerned that the false. Teachers will take these Christians captive. That They will influence their thinking. They will influence their mind, and it will cause them to drift away. Jude wants these Christians to be on guard. Listen, one of the most important positions in boxing is the guard or the hard block position. Notice it here. This it's so unbelievably important for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, for instance, if done correctly, you can still see your opponent and you can counter them if they punch. But here's the most important reason why the guard matters. Are you ready? Because it protects your head. The last thing you want exposed in a fight is your head. And so the guard is very, very important. Now think about that not physically, but spiritually. You have to guard the way you think. Because there's all kinds of mindsets and mentalities and false teachings that's coming at your mind. So you'd better be on guard and contend for the truth, for the faith, or you'll be held captive. So what's this false teaching that Jude is so concerned about that has crept in that would hold these Christians captive? I'm glad you asked. Verse 4. Here's what the phrase uh, that Jude uses here to describe the false teachers. They've crept in and here's what they do. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let let me put that in short and sweet terms. They use grace to justify sin. They turn grace into a license to do whatever you want to do. It goes like this, okay? Everybody right here. You are saved, we are saved by grace alone. That sounds right, doesn't it? And not based on anything you have done. Still sounds good, right? So you can go do whatever you want. It's that little twisting there at the end. We're saved by grace, amen. And it's not of anything that you have done. That is, it's not of the law. How many of you remember the book of Galatians? We're not saved by law. Then here's the twist. So live lawlessly. Do whatever your heart desires. It doesn't matter because what? Grace. If you want to impress your friends at the party, use this term, antinomianism. That's, that's what this idea, this thinking is. It's antinomian law, against the law. Uh, th- this was a very common teaching in New Testament times. It would take a biblical truth that we are not saved by the law to an unbiblical conclusion that you can live lawlessly and however you want. I'll show you some other examples where this comes up in the New Testament. Paul as well as Jude, has to defend against this. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That what? Grace may abound. Are you outside your mind? That's my translation there. (laughs) By no means. You must be crazy. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Grace is not an excuse to sin. That's not... Grace motivates us to live in obedience. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Now, notice the quotation marks. Do you see? Uh, Paul is quoting what the false teachers are saying. Everybody with me? Here's what the false teachers are saying. Oh, I've lulled you to sleep. That's so sweet. Some of you like, are you with me? Uh." Right? Paul quotes the false teachers and here's what they were saying, quote, uh, all things are lawful for me. What are they saying? I can do whatever I want. I'm not under the law. Anything is lawful for me. Here's Paul's response. Uh, Yep, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. There it is again. Yeah, but we will not be controlled or dominated uh, or or, or held enslaved by anything. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Here is the argument. It's my body. I can do whatever I want. I can eat what I want. I can do whatever I want with my body. I am free. Answer, Paul says, uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Hey, 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 listen, 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 listen. Your body is not meant for you to do whatever you want with your body. Your body is meant for you to use that as an instrument of worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Do you see the argument they're making is because I'm not saved by law, then I don't have to follow God's moral law. I can do whatever I want. Listen to me closely, faith family. The gospel is not you're saved by grace so you can live however you want. The gospel is this. You are saved by grace to live for Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. You are saved by grace to live for Christ. And in this sense, this is the last service. I'm going to give you some extra stuff, all right? So um, in many ways, this is the good balance to the grace parade, I mean, we just did a whole series on the grace parade, and now we're coming into a book where false teachers have manipulated grace. So let me say it this way. If you've zoned out, zone back in. Listen, grace receives all sinners, but never justifies sin. There's your grace parade and contend going together. Did you see what I did there? Grace receives all sinners, but it never justifies sin. Good works do not matter for salvation, but good works matter. Now, why would this teaching be so dangerous? Now that we understand what is being taught here, where does this lead? Why is this dangerous? Why would using grace to deny God's moral law? We're not talking about the ceremonial law. We're talking about moral law. Um, why Why would it be dangerous to use grace to reject God's moral law? And here's the reason, okay, everybody right here, because it would make you the law. Follow the thought, if grace means, after all, God's a really gracious God, and he'll forgive me of anything, he'll be gracious no matter what I do, so I'll just manipulate this and pervert this and twist this into I can live however I want to live, well, guess who just became the law? You. You're no longer under God's authority, you have become the authority of your life. Because you're the one that now determines what's right or wrong. You're the one that determines how you can use your body. You're the one that determines how it is that you can live. You're the one that determines your life. Now, uh, Jude is going to give 14 descriptions uh, in the verses that we just read that describes this very thing. And I'm going to give them to you and you're like, 14, he ain't got time for that. If you're a note taker, write fast. That's all I can say, okay? Because I don't want to get so lost in the tree that we miss the forest of what Jude is trying to say. Look at how he describes where the teaching of the false teachers leads you. Is everybody still with me? Okay? Here we go. Number one, they are godless in verse four. What he means here is they are moral atheists. They believe in God, but they live like there ain't one. They are moral atheists. Two, they pervert grace. They use grace to justify their sinful lifestyle. Number three, they deny Christ. That is, they live as if there is no Lord. They will confess Jesus with their lips while denying him with their life. Verse 5, he mentions Israel. Do you remember the story of Israel in Egypt? Uh, God leads them out of Egypt across the sea, gives them the law at Sinai, uh, and he's promised them the promised land. He has spoken. He said, this is yours. Um, And they send out Numbers 14, 12 spies. Uh, Ten spies come back and say, we can't do it. The giants are too big. Do you remember this? Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, we got this. Uh, and what does the nation is, of Israel decide to do? They decide to listen to the majority, to listen to the ten, uh, and listen, they go their own way instead of going God's way. God said, I'm giving it to you. They said, we don't believe you. We'll go our own way. And they wandered in the wilderness. Next, he talks about angels. Angels. This will be fun. This is going to sound really odd to a lot of you, but to Jude's audience, they would have understood this very easily. Uh, Back in Genesis 6, uh, in Jewish tradition, it was understood that uh, angelic beings were given the position of watching over humanity. Now stay with me. This is entertainment right here. Uh, The angelic beings were seduced by human females, daughters of men. And they left their position of watching over humanity, which we see here in the text, and they manifested themselves as males, happens frequently uh, in in Scripture. And they have offspring with the daughters of men. There is a race, some of you have studied this, known as the Nephilim. It pollutes the lineage of Christ, and so what does God do? He sends a flood. And he wipes humanity out and starts brand new with Noah, okay? How's that for entertaining it? I know you are are driving to church today. I hope we talk about the Nephilim, right? (laughs) It's like, what is that? But Jude's audience would have absolutely understood what he was talking about. But don't get lost in the tree. Here's the forest. Here's the point. Are you ready? Right back here. The angels decided to do their own thing. They didn't do what God told them to do. They did their own thing. They went their own way, just like Israel did in the wilderness. Next story, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, Sodom was a place of sexual immorality, Homosexuality even says in the text about the unnatural desire there in verse 7. They were filled with pride. They neglected the poor. The slogan in Sodom would have gone like this, what happens in Sodom stays in Sodom. That's the kind of place it was. What's the point? Right here, they lived according to their own desires rather than God's design they went, are you seeing a pattern form, their own way. Here's the next one. Verse eight calls the false teachers dreamers. That is, they live by their own imagination rather than divine revelation. They live based on this. Well, God told me to. How do you argue with that? I, mean, I, had, a, I had a vision. I had a dream, uh, that's my authority. I don't need your word, I don't need your Bible, God spoke to me. Like I just feel in my heart, this is what I'm supposed to do. Ugh. that's a terrible basis of authority. And you'll see things like this, I'm, and I'm not picking on this issue, I'm just, I'll see people that will argue this way. God wants me to be happy, I'm not happy in my marriage, and therefore God wants me to get a divorce. Now, nothing of which you said is based on any revelation at all. It's based on your own imagination. Is that I think God wants this and therefore that, so I conclude this. That's exactly what they were doing in order to justify doing their own thing. Are you seeing a pattern? Not only are they dreamers, verse 8 says they're defilers of the flesh. That is, they would say, it's my body, I'll do with it whatever I want. I'll have sex with whoever I want, I'll be whatever sex I want, I'll eat whatever I want. It's my body, I'll do with my body, my flesh, whatever I want to do. So, thank you very much, I don't need you speaking into my life. Next, they reject authority, verse 8. That is, nobody's going to tell them how they're going to live their life. Next, they blaspheme angels. This one on the surface seems odd, but it's really not. Uh, based on Hebrews chapter 2, Acts 7, Galatians 3, the angels were the mediators of the Mosaic law. So this is all that's happening here, stay with me, is... Um, The way to demean the law, which they were trying to reject anyway so they could live however they wanted to live, a way to do that was to speak bad of angels. If angels were the mediators of the law, if you demean angels, you demean the law to justify living however you want to live. Here's the next. Uh, They are unreasoning animals. That is, um, they're controlled by their appetites. They are unrestrained. Any of y'all got a pet that ever just goes psycho? Anybody got that dog like this dog that just occasionally goes a little bit cuckoo, right? Uh, this is exactly what's happening in the life of the false teachers. They are They're living however they want. They're running in all different directions. They are unreasoning animals. The next is Cain. You still with me? We're almost done. Can I get an amen over that? (laughs) All right, Cain is what? What's the story of Cain? God says, bring me this sacrifice. And Cain says, nah, I'll bring my own. Do you remember? He approaches God on his own terms rather than God's terms. What's the theme? God, I'll do it my way. Next is Balaam. Balaam abandoned God's call for cash. He was called to be a prophet of God, but he gave that up for profit of money. He sacrificed faithfulness for finances. I wish I knew of people on TV that did stuff like that, but I don't have any examples, right? He, he, he was led in ministry by doing his own thing and fulfilling his own pocket. Lastly, Korah. What's the story with Korah? In verse 11, he rebelled against God's appointed leader in Moses. He says, I will not recognize the authority that God has placed over my life. I will rebel and do my own thing. Everybody take a deep breath. Do you see? You really did. That's encouraging. Um, (laughs) do Do you see the thread that's running through all of that? See, my fear, the reason why I did that is I was afraid you'd get so bogged down in the details that you'd miss the point that Jude is making. Everybody right here, if if your neighbor has zoned out, you can punch them in Jesus' name, gently. (laughs) I need you back right here, right here. Here's the point Jude is making. When you twist grace to justify your own life, you become your own authority To live however you want to live in rebellion to how God has called you to live. Friends, it's not new. It happened with Israel. It happened with the angels. It happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened with Cain. It happened with Balaam. It happened with Korah. Friends, it's happening now with these false teachers that have crept in. They are telling you to reject the authority of God for personal autonomy. They are saying, We don't need the law. We will be the law. That's dangerous. Let me show you two Old Testament examples. Judges 21 verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in whose eyes? His own eyes. There's no authority. There's no king in Israel. So guess what? We can party like it's 1999. We can do whatever we want because we got no authority in life. Or what about Proverbs 29:18? Where there is no prophetic vision, that is spoken word of God, the people cast off restraints, they do whatever they want, but blessed is He who keeps the law." Now, I'm in a difficult position right now because there are no modern examples of this anywhere in our culture. I struggled all week trying to find how in the world does this apply to today? Are you picking up on the sarcasm? (laughs) Christian, this is the world in which we live. Hello? You thought the book of Jude wasn't relevant. It just diagnosed our culture. Bon Jovi says it's my life. Bobby Brown told me growing up it's my prerogative. I can do what I want to do. Bob Marley says, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Burger King told me I can have it my way. (laughs) The sexual revolution says it's my body, I can do with it what I want. The largest section of books in Barnes and Noble is the self improvement, self esteem section, because stamped on every single American psyche is a declaration of independence. I'll be my own authority. I don't need my boss telling me what to do. I don't need my parents telling me what to do. Certainly don't need you, pastor, telling me what to do. I don't need God because I am one. That's what happens when you twist grace. You see it in our movies. Do you remember Precious Little Dorothy? She leaves her Kansas home and is headed towards the Emerald City to meet the wizard. He's going to grant her wish. He's going to solve her problems. He will be the solution. And along the way to meet the wizard, she comes across three very interesting characters who also believe that the wizard will solve their problems. She meets a scarecrow who needs a brain, a tin man who needs a heart, and a lion that needs courage. And when they arrive at the Emerald City, there he is. There's smoke and this thundering voice and they are in awe of the wizard until Dorothy's little dog pulls the curtain back and what they realize is this is no one to fear. This is just an old man pulling the levers. And then all of a sudden it hits them. Everything we thought we needed, we already had. And didn't need the wizard after all. It is a metaphor, it is a narrative, it is a story of our culture that says you don't need God, be one. Don't you understand what's fashionable is personal autonomy? And it's one thing when we see that in the culture. I may preach a little bit here this morning. It's another thing when it creeps in the church. When we forsake biblical authority for self-help motivational talks, when we don't talk about sin and repentance anymore because it's my life, pastor, it's none of your business. Don't talk about things like giving because it's my money. Don't take a stand on anything because you might offend someone. And all the while the church slips away from the biblical reality, which is the authority of God into worldly captivity of personal autonomy. And we do it in the name of grace. It was happening then. It is happening now. Follow the flow of the argument. You twist grace to justify however you want to live. It means you become the authority rather than God being the authority. And that is a dangerous place to be. You better guard your mind. And if you're here today and this feels offensive, it may be that you're identifying more with your captivity than biblical reality. But Jude now goes one step further. He doesn't just identify what the false teaching is. He shows where this false teaching leads, that everything that i just laid out there, if, if that is your approach to life, it will take you somewhere you do not want to end up. Look at verse 5. We'll do this quickly. I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. How did it end for those that rebelled against God's way in the wilderness? Not well. They were judged. What about the angels who did not stay, verse 6, within their own position of authority? They did their own thing but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. How did it end for the angels when they went their own way? Not well. They were judged. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Verse 7. The surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality pursued unnatural desires serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of e eternal fire how did it end for them not well they were judged what is Jude's simple point point? and listen listen faith family for those of you that have been around a while you know I preach the text right and, and there are texts that are uh, comforting and there are texts that are warning and we need to see that God's grace is in both you with me? So here is our gracious warning from God's word. Here's what Jude wants them to know walking away from God's instruction leads to destruction. There is nothing that will destroy a nation. Destroy a church, destroy a marriage, destroy a life, then stepping outside the authority of God. And I say that to you in love. No one has ever fought against. God, and one. And what is ironic is probably not the right word, but I'll use it. What is ironic with Israel is they didn't go into the land that God had promised them because they were afraid of being destroyed only to make God their enemy and be destroyed. Go God's way, friend. The other way is a path to devastation. Like the Teton Dam in southeastern Idaho that collapsed, surging water all into the Snake River Basin. There was unbelievable extensive damage to homes. Uh, there was loss of life. It was catastrophic and Uh, It appeared to just happen suddenly out of the blue. But the truth is, there was erosion taking place underneath that nobody could see. And it went on for long enough that the dam finally collapsed. And it was total devastation. Submit yourselves to the Lord. And live life under his authority. You, listen, I love you. You make a terrible God. I mean, I love you. Absolutely terrible. But there is one true and living God, and he is good. Well, how do we counter this? In the remaining time I don't have, how do we counter this thinking? So point one, the core of the teaching was pervert grace, live how you want to live, be your own authority. The consequences of that is it leads to a place you don't want to go. So how do we counter it? This and we close. Go back to verse 1 and then verse 3. I'll show you two quick things. One, Jude, a servant, that is a slave, a bondservant, doulos of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There's one. The second is in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Two things out of there quickly. Number one, Christian, you are owned by God. You are not yours. Jude says, I'm a slave. I'm a doulos. I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He purchased me with his blood. I belong to him. My body's not my body. My money's not my money. My marriage is not my marriage. My life is not even my life. I belong to him. So anything that would try to creep into the church, creep into my mind, I'm on guard that would tell me you be your own God. You exalt God. You say, thank you very much. I already have a God. His name is Jesus. He owns me. I am his. And my life exists to live for him. That's how you counter that false teaching that's waiting for you right when you walk out these doors. I am not my own. I've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus, and I am his. Two from verse 3, is that you are under the word of God. That is, this faith that was delivered to you. I talked about last week that part of being a Christian is to receive the faith. It's to have faith in the faith, to believe the belief. That is, part of being a Christian is you have received the gospel, you have received the word of God as true, and you are under its authority. You're not looking for another word, a friend's word, a parent's word, Dr. Phil's word, the news's word. Heaven forbid. You're looking, what does the word have to say over my life? Because I am His. Are you with me? Do you see the text? Pervert grace, do what you want, be your own authority. That leads to a place you don't want to go, just look at history. Israel, the angel, Sodom. History ought to teach you something. So counter that. You got your guard up? Counter that with what? The truth of the gospel. That you are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you don't belong to you. You belong to Him. Hey, by the way, that temptation, that false teaching isn't new. Matthew 4. Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. The enemy says, turn those stones into bread. Eat whatever you want to eat, buddy. I know you're hungry. Follow your appetites. Do what you want to do. And Jesus says, Man will not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Well, okay, here's another idea. Bow down and worship me, and look at all the kingdoms that you can have. Think of all the power, think of all the authority you could have in your life. You could be a king. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus knew then what Jude is pleading for us to know now. And it's this, you will never experience victory until you submit your life friend to God's authority and all God's people said amen Amen. would you pray with me father thank you for your word these are these are difficult words to hear especially given the culture in which we live these seem so strange and that's because often we identify more with our captivity than we do biblical reality the good news of the gospel is that we don't live life by our authority. We are under the authority of a good, good Father. And if there's somebody here today and they have never bowed the knee to the gracious King Jesus, a grace that will not justify their sin, but certainly will forgive it, I pray that we would bow the knee and run to him by faith. Others of us, maybe we've stepped out of God's authority, God's ways, God's designs, and we've been living life on our own. I pray this morning that we would see where that leads, that we would repent, and that we would experience the true transforming grace of Christ. God, speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.